The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning and welcome to our New Year's Eve service on New Year's Eve morning here at West Houston Bible Church. The only announcement that I know of is that we're having a brunch immediately following the morning service. So if you're here and you didn't know that or didn't remember that, you're surely invited to stay and participate with us and enjoy all that was brought because they do a pretty good job here, especially when it comes to desserts. Before we begin our worship this morning, let's bow our heads and go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, we're truly grateful that we have made it through another year and have another year to look forward to. And we uh, reflect upon your many blessings and your grace this last year and the way you have provided for us. And we anticipate even greater things this coming year. Father, all of this is due to your grace that is neither earned nor deserved, and all because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Now, Father, as we worship you this morning, we pray that all that we say and do will honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation. Revelation 4 and 5 contain one dramatic unit. It is a section of... The book of Revelation that begins the future section, that which will uh, come to pass. That's the things that will be as the Apostle John states it in the first verse. It is a focus on that period that we call uh, the Great Tribulation. We have a chart here that we go over again and again to try to uh, ingrain it into your thinking so that you understand the overall panorama of future things. We are currently living in what is known as the church age. Church age is distinct from the age of Israel. The church age began on the day of Pentecost when God the Holy Spirit descended upon the apostles and the church in approximately A.D. 33. The church age ends with the rapture when Jesus Christ comes back in the clouds and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and thus we shall ever be with the Lord. There is a gap, some period of time. We don't know how long, could be short, could be long, between the end of the church age and the beginning of the next period, which is the tribulation period. It is a period of seven years. It is described as Daniel's 70th week in Daniel chapter 9. And it is a time when the emphasis in God's plan and program returns back to Israel, Israel is the focus, and part of the, or one of the reasons for the tribulation is that God is going to bring the Jews to a point where they will accept Jesus as their Messiah and call upon Him to come and deliver them. So the thrust of the book of Revelation is on this period of time, describing it as a time when God brings His judgment upon human history and human cultures because of their rejection of Him. And so the 
the introduction to this period begins not with what happens on planet Earth, but what happens in the heavenly courtroom of God is described in these two chapters, chapter 4 and 5. As we'll see in our study, the judgment seat of Christ, which is the evaluation of all church-age believers, actually takes place in heaven prior to the beginning of the tribulation, at least when the scene opens. In Revelation chapter 4, the church has already been resurrected, raptured, and rewarded. The tribulation period ends with the marriage of the Lamb. The Lord Jesus Christ then returns to the earth. There is a judgment of tribulation, believers and unbelievers. And then we have the thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on the earth known as the millennium. This ends with the great white throne judgment, the destruction of the present heavens and earth, and the creation of a new heavens and new earth. That is our prophetic panorama. We're just at the beginning of this period looking at what is transpiring in the heavenlies. Revelation 4.1 begins, After these things I look. The eye is the Apostle John. This is his uh, second vision, as it were. He says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open. The emphasis there is it's already open. It's a perfect tense verb indicating the present reality of a past action. A door opened, you might translate it, in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So the focus is on the future from Revelation 4 through Revelation 22. The focus is on the future. Now, since we study this, we learn what our future destiny is as part of this. For we come back with the Lord Jesus Christ to rule and reign with kings and priests. But we as church-age believers are also represented in Revelation 4 and 5. We are part of the action as we have seen already and we'll cover a little more this morning. Now, as we get into chapter 4 and 5, it's one of those things where you have to uh, take some time to identify who all the players are. Otherwise, you can just be become confused. You just sit there and kind of watch everything and think, wow, this is interesting. It's sort of like a conversation I overheard this last week. A young lady was talking about the fact that she had had an opportunity to attend a Houston Texan football game. She didn't know anything about football. She got to go down on the field, meet the players, sit on the 50-yard line, watch the game. Didn't have a clue what was going on. Has no interest in football. And all she could say was, well, it was terribly exciting and there was a lot of action. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people who read the book of Revelation, and that's about all they can say, is it looks exciting, there's a lot of things going on, but I really don't understand what is happening or why it's important to me. And yet that is uh, what the writers of Scripture say again and again, that even if we're looking at details that don't directly involve us, that are yet future to us, They are vitally important because they shape our thinking today. We must learn to live today in light of eternity, understanding what that future destiny is and what God is doing with us as believers today in preparation for that future period. So we look at this chapter and there are seven key things that we must identify. Seven key things that we must identify. First of all, and some of this we already have. First of all, we must identify the throne and the one sitting 
in it, as mentioned in Revelation chapter 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and on the throne one sitting. I've corrected the translation there. It's a present active participle indicating present action. Often writers of our translators will take a present tense verb and they'll translate it into English with a past tense. And it loses the sense of the action and the drama that is present as John is describing what is happening before his very eyes. The throne is the throne of God. I have some pictures here that we'll see that are drawn by Pat Marvenko Smith on, and she's illustrated a number of things in Revelation. Some are good, some aren't, but I think she's captured the imagery of Revelation 4 in a dramatic way in this particular uh, rendition. Uh, the only criticism I have is a couple of the angels look a little too feminine for me, but uh, we don't have feminine angels. They're all masculine. And we'll have to get into uh, angelology as we go through this study, but the throne is the center of the stage in Revelation 4 and 5, and the one who is sitting on it is not described. But all of the things around the throne are described, and we know that it is God the Father sitting on the throne, and the throne is no longer pictured here, as we'll see, as the throne of grace that we go to in this dispensation, but is the throne, it is transformed into a throne of judgment in preparation for the great end-time judgment of the tribulation period. Secondly, we have to identify the 24 elders who are sitting on 24 thrones. We have to identify the seven lamps and the seven spirits of God that are before the throne. We have to identify the four living creatures. We have to identify the lamb who comes forward in chapter 5. We have to identify the scroll, which will be a fascinating study to understand the significance of the scroll that is opened. And we have to understand the seven seals on the scroll. So those are the seven things we'll be identifying. The thrust of these two chapters is not so much on these details. We have to understand them because we're, they're, they're, they're filled with symbolism, they're filled with doctrinal significance, but once we understand the details, we understand what we're watching in this dramatic scene, then when we come to the end of looking at that analysis, we have to look at what is actually transpiring here. And that is that first and foremost, it is it's a scene of heavenly worship. As the living creatures, the four living creatures, the 24 elders, and all of the angels are before the throne of God, and they will sing praise to God. And we know of verse 8, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It is similar to that which the uh, seraphs, sing to one another in Isaiah chapter 6. And so a focal point of this whole narrative is on the holiness, the purity, the righteousness, the integrity of God, the one sitting on the throne who comes to judge human history that he is the one who has absolute righteousness, absolute justice, absolute holiness, absolute purity. Therefore, he is the only one who can judge, and he gives that judgment to the Lamb. And the Lamb is qualified because he is the one who has redeemed us. So we will take some time to go through the doctrine of worship. Sometimes people today, especially in a lot of doctrinal churches, 
are so interested in Bible class, so emphasis, so uh, interested in the teaching that they forget that singing uh, praise to God is very much a part of worship. Every time we get a glimpse into heaven, whether it's in the Old Testament in Isaiah 6 or whether it's in the New Testament in Revelation 4 and 5 or other places in Revelation, we find that the uh, those who are present, the angels and the church, are worshiping God in song. This is not something that is just sort of secondary that somehow has been tacked on to Sunday morning uh, worship just because somewhere along the line people thought it was good to sing these hymns. But it is something that has, from the Old Testament time to the present, been a vital part of worship. We can go all the way back to the time of the Exodus when Miriam composed a, a hymn of praise to God for delivering them from slavery in Egypt, all the way up through Revelation. Singing is a vital part of worship of God. So let's get into the details of this uh, chapter a little more. We see that on the throne there is one sitting, and then there's this description of the throne. Around the throne there are 24 thrones. And on the thrones, John says, I saw 24 elders sitting. They haven't risen yet. They are sitting. They are clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold upon their head. Now, last time we spent some time looking at this and this morning I want to take the drill and dig a little deeper into the, the identification of these 24 elders and their function within the book of Revelation. There's a tremendous amount of debate. You may not be aware of this, but there's a lot of debate down through church history as to who these elders are. There are some who say they're angels. There are others who say, no, they're not angels. They are men. And as I taught last week, these are definitely men. Now, who are they? Are they Old Testament saints? Are they New Testament? Church-age believers. They are church-age believers. They are not Old Testament saints. Old Testament saints don't get raptured or resurrected until the end of the tribulation period. So these represent the church. So let's go through. I added several points to what I covered last week to emphasize this. This is very important because it forms a foundation for understanding what happens later on in the book of Revelation. And if you misidentify the 24 elders then you'll be off-center a little bit at different places as you go through the events in the heavenlies. So we have eight reasons why the 24 elders are the resurrected, glorified, and rewarded church. First of all, they're called elders. The term in the Greek is presbyteroi, which is a word never used of angels. It's really interesting, I find that, that and curious, that in the seven letters to the seven churches, they are each addressed to the angel of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of uh, Sardis, the angel of the church of Thyatira, the angel of the church of Pergamum or, or Smyrna or Laodicea. But there's so many people who can't quite figure out how that relates to an angel that they want to take the word angel that always refers, with a, only one exception, always refers to immaterial spirit beings created by God and they want to make that a human being. And then when they get over into Revelation 4, where you have a word that never refers to anything other than human beings, they want to make that angels. 
So we have to be consistent. Word study is very important. There has to be consistency. So the term elder is never used of angels anywhere in the Scriptures. Second, there is an absence of the mention of these 24 elders or any group of 24 elders in heaven prior to the events of Revelation 4. In other words, they're not there. They, you go through the Old Testament, you don't find any mention of 24 elders. You go to the New Testament, there's no uh, mention of 24 elders. It's not until you get to uh, Revelation chapter 4 that they are mentioned. The church, the word ecclesia, is mentioned 19 times in the first three chapters of Revelation, but it's not mentioned again in the rest of the book of Revelation. In fact, the church is not indicated until you come to the bride of Christ, the bride at the marriage supper of the Lamb, in Revelation chapter 19. That's the next time you really see the church. So where is the church between Revelation 3 and Revelation 19? It's interesting that after Revelation 19, you never hear of the 24 elders again. What happens? Well, the church becomes the 24 elders, the 24 elders are the bride of Christ. So it fits perfectly within the flow and the structure of the book of Revelation. Third point, the prophecies in Daniel. And we'll spend a lot of time in Daniel at different points because the prophecies in Daniel form the backdrop, the frame of reference, the structure for understanding the symbolism and the events of the book of Revelation. We get our information on Revelation from the Old Testament, not from Greek uh, culture, not from Roman culture, not from the background of, of any other extra-biblical literature. It doesn't come from some group of apocalyptic literature that you have floating around the ancient Near East. It has its roots in Old Testament imagery. You have to go to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Zephaniah and Zechariah and many different books in the Old Testament to pick up on this imagery. And that's the fascinating thing about studying prophecy and studying the book of Revelation is it pulls together just a whole host of different passages throughout the Scripture. You really have to be able to tie together a lot of different things. And as a pastor, I have to be able to break this down simply enough so you can take this mass of detail and pull it together in your head to give you a frame of reference. Well, the book of Daniel is the frame of reference for Revelation. In Daniel 7-9, which is a, a vision of the kingdoms, the successive Gentile kingdoms in human history culminating in their destruction and the establishment of the kingdom of the Son of Man, Daniel says in verse 9, I watched till thrones. Note, it's a plural. I watched till thrones were put in place. And the Ancient of Days was seated. This is God the Father sitting on His throne of judgment. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow. The hair of His head was like pure wool. It's the, this whiteness, this brightness that we see again and again. We saw this with the image, uh, the presentation of Jesus Christ in chapter 1. We see it in other places. It pictures the integrity, the purity of God the Father, His his absolute righteousness. 
And then we read his throne. Notice it's a singular here. We had thrones put in place. Well, what are those thrones? What are the other thrones? Because there's only one throne that he's sitting on. His throne is pictured as a fiery flame. It's wheels a burning fire. Now, that imagery comes over from Ezekiel, and we'll uh, take time later on to analyze the Ezekiel vision uh, probably next week when we start trying to figure out who those four living creatures are. So we have other thrones. Only one throne has an occupant at this particular time in Daniel 7-9, and that is God the Father. It is not until you get the 24 elders in Revelation chapter 4 that you have occupants of the other thrones in the heavenly uh, courtroom. Point number four. The number 24 is based on the representative priesthood in Israel. Now, what do I mean by representative? This is a tricky word here because in the book of Revelation, we often talk about symbols. We have a lot of different symbols in the book of Revelation. We have lampstands and we have stars and we have other things that are definitely symbolic and and interpreted uh, in that way. But they're not representative in the way I'm using this word. The, The 24... Uh, are representatives of a larger group. They're uh, members of a larger group. Just as all the citizens of the United States are represented by 435 members of the House of Representatives, so all of the church-age believers in heaven will be represented by 24 on an ongoing cycle in the throne of God. This is based on the Analogy in the Old Testament in both First Chronicles 24, 3 and 4, and in First Chronicles, uh, that should be 25, 9 through 30. 25, 9 through 30, uh, it's a typo. On 25, 9 through 30, you see 24, that for some reason there's this group of 24, and they are on a, an ongoing cycle, and they represent a much larger group. There are 24 literal people there. Now, we don't know who they are. It's not like some people say, well, this is the 12 patriarchs of the Old Testament and 12 apostles, but the 12 patriarchs haven't been resurrected yet, so they can't be there. So it's just a representative number. Fifth, the white garments are those of rewarded church-age believers. This is the same term used in Revelation 3, verse 5, and Revelation 3.18. Some say, well, angels appear in white. Yes, they do. But the terminology that's used here is never used of angels. It is only used of the rewarded church-age believers in Revelation 3, 5, and 18. Sixth, the golden crowns are called Stephanos crowns, not diademos. A Stephanos crown is the crown of a victor. It is an award for having overcome, for being a victor. This represents the fact that they have already been Rewarded, They have already gone through the judgment seat of Christ. The distribution of awards and crowns has already taken place. Angels are never said anywhere in Scripture to wear victor crowns, only human beings. Seventh, the function of the 24 elders tells us they must be church-age believers. They function throughout the book of Revelation as kings and priests to God. They are bringing prayers before God. They are worshiping God. They function as priests. We know from Revelation 5 verse 10, which we'll look at in more detail uh, in the next point, the 
four living creatures sing in an antiphonal manner with the 24 elders and respond to them by saying, God has made you kings and priests to our God. And in several other passages in Revelation, the church is said to be kings and priests. We are to, we will reign as co-regents with the Lord Jesus Christ and we will function as priests in the New Jerusalem. And finally, point number eight, these 24 elders are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, they are redeemed. Angels are not redeemed. There is no redemption for angels. Redemption comes by the blood of the Lamb. That tells us that it can only relate to human beings, for it was Jesus Christ who is the Lamb of God, who as true humanity would be was able to die as our substitute. Substitute had to be kind for kind. You can't have the Lord Jesus Christ in humanity dying for angels. So this can't refer to angels. And this brings up a very interesting textual problem. Now I've pointed this out before, and I'll point it out again, that the manuscript that is used for the book of Revelation has a lot of textual variance in it. And if you use a New King, or a New King James or King James, you will often find that passages differ, sometimes substantially, from what you find in a New American Standard, New International Version, or one of the more modern translations. And there's a lot more you can, I can say about this, and a lot more we, can, we could study about this. I don't want to get into a discourse on textual criticism this morning. But there are basically two views as to how to handle these textual variants. In one passage, like we see in uh, Revelation 5, uh, 9, and 10 today, in some places you'll have a a pronoun that's in some manuscripts and it's not in other manuscripts. Uh, None of these textual variants affect any major doctrine or any significant doctrine, but they are important in places in terms of understanding and interpreting passages. And so, over the course of time, Basically, two two approaches have been developed to handle and to try to understand what the original said. The first view is that older is better. If you have 3rd century, 4th century manuscripts, they must be more accurate than 8th or 9th century manuscripts. Sounds good, doesn't it? We think that way. And that view has dominated the uh, textual critical field for the last hundred or so years. One of the problems with that, and there's a lot of problems, is that if you pick up the critical Greek text, the UBS text, United Biblical Societies, or the Nestle-Alon text, you won't find that text in any ancient manuscript. It's, a, it's an eclectic version. It, it picks and chooses from different ancient texts, so that creates certain problems. The other view is called the majority text view, and that's the view that the uh, that in the providence of God, as he preserved the text, it would have been preserved in the majority of documents that, that we have found. Now, what's interesting is it doesn't matter what view you take on textual criticism when you come to Revelation 5, 9, and 10. Not at all. Because there is only one significant manuscript, Codex Alexandrinus, and one uh, other manuscript, the Ethiopic translation, that has this 
in this wording that you have in your NIV, NASB, or any of the other modern translations. And I pointed this out last time. If you look in, if you've got an NIV, NASB, anything other than a King James or New King James, if you look at Revelation 5, verse 9, where they sing a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed, and you will see the word in italics, men. The word in italics isn't there in the original. That's why they put those words in italics. They substituted that because for the most part, textual critics didn't believe in a pre-tribulation rapture and they couldn't understand why the majority of texts, including all but one of the oldest versions, had us there. That did. How could human beings be in heaven? In their view, the rapture didn't occur until the end of the tribulation period. So this is a great text for showing that the rapture must occur before the tribulation takes place and that here you have church age believers already in place in heaven raptured and rewarded. So we read there uh, of two groups actually. There's two groups in the first part of chapter, chapter 5. You have the 24 elders on the one hand and you have the living creatures on the other and they sing antiphonally much as the seraphs do in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 6 where one group sings, then the other answers. But together they are all viewed as one group. So when the writer, the observer John, writes and says, and they sang a new song, he's talking about this heavenly choir composed of two subgroups, the living creatures and the 24 elders. And so when, since they sing together, even though they're not all singing at the same time, he says, one sings, you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood. And that would be the 24 elders. They were redeemed by God. So that must be the church. And then they are answered by the group that, of the four living creatures. And addressing the Lamb, they sing, and have made them, that is in reference to the 24 elders, the church, have made them kings and priests to our God, and you, the Lamb, shall reign on the earth. So it is a declaration of praise to the Lamb for what He has done in providing redemption for the church and preparing them to rule and reign with Him when He comes in His kingdom. So when you look at all of this evidence, it becomes clear that the church is already raptured and the church has already been rewarded by the opening scene in the tribulation period, this heavenly scene. Now, this isn't the end of the 24 elders. They play a key role in the rest of the book of Revelation when we go back and forth between a heavenly scene and an earthly scene. There are 11 verses, including some that I've already mentioned in chapter 4 and 5, 11 verses that describe the function of these 24 elders. They're mentioned in Revelation 4.4 4 and 4.10, in 5.5 5 through 6, 8 and 11, in 7.11 and 13, 11.16, What's important in these is that in each of these situations, you see them before the throne of God, worshiping along with the uh, four living creatures.
In Revelation 7.11 we read, And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, These who are clothed in white robes, who are they? Where have they come from? Talking about tribulation. Uh, martyrs who, have, uh, who are present there in heaven. And then in Revelation 11:16, the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. In Revelation 14:3, we learn that they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 purchased on the earth. We'll study them in Rome, uh, Revelation chapter, chapter 7. So we see uh, this emphasis on the uh, 24 elders. So let's summarize it. First of all, we see that the elders are located in the heavenly throne room of God, sitting around the throne of God in Revelation chapter 4 and 5. Point number two, these 24 thrones are in close proximity to the Lamb's throne. So there is an indication of association there with the Lamb in Revelation 4.4, Revelation 11.16. They're also, point number three, they're also in close association with the four living creatures, but they're distinct from them. Revelation 4.6, 4, 4.9-10, 5.6, 8, and 11. Fourth, they fall down before the one sitting on the throne to worship him again and again and again. There is this picture of them falling on their face to worship the one upon their throne. Fifth, they provide information to John during his visions. They give him information. They help him interpret what he is seeing in 5.5 and in 7.13. And then sixth, both in chapter 5 and in uh, chapter 14, verse 3, they sing a new song. This, indica- this song emphasizes the redemptive work of Christ on the cross. Well, that brings us to the fifth verse. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And also in the second half of the verse, it states, Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. So two different ideas are present in this verse. We'll just look at the first one uh, this morning. Two things in this verse are emphasized. Just this first part emphasizes these uh, visual audio effects that come out from the throne. We find a mention of these effects four different times in Revelation. This is the first. There are three others. In Revelation 8, 5, we read, Then the angel this took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, threw it to the earth, and there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. Something new added. Revelation eleven nineteen we read, Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. The ark of His covenant was seen in His temple, and there were, note the increasing number of things that are happening, lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Notice that each time we see this, there's a new added dimension uh, to the 
uh, description. And we're prog- as we progress through the tribulation, the judgment of God becomes more and more intense and has more and more violent manifestations in planet Earth. Revelation 16, 18, there were noises and thunderings and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake, such a mighty and great earthquake as had not occurred since men were on the earth. Now, you may say, well, it didn't mention hail, just mentioned hail the last time. Well, if you go down to about verse 19, it mentions a fiery hail that comes down at the same time. It, this is the final judgment that takes place at the beginning of the Armageddon campaign when this great earthquake destroys the city of, of Babylon and it's split three ways and is then destroyed by this fiery hail that comes down from God. So there is this progression that takes place as we move from one of these judgments to another. In chapter 4, the focus is on the throne of God and the beginning of the judgments when the scroll is going to be opened and the seven seals begin to be opened and those uh, initial judgments uh, start to take place. In chapter 8, verse 5, the mention of the lightnings and noise and thunder. Noise always comes between lightning and thunder. I mean, the lightning, noise, and then the thunder. Uh, at 8, 5, that occurs with the opening of the seventh seal. When that seventh seal is open, and the inhabitants of heaven witness what will be involved, it is so horrendous, it is so terrible, that John says there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And then an angel comes forward with a censer who, which represents prayer and the burning of incense. He takes that to the prayer of the saints and then that is thrown upon the earth to begin the seven trumpet judgments. And then in 1119, we come to the seventh trumpet judgment. Chapter 8 was the 11th seal judgment. Chapter 11 is the seventh trumpet judgment, which initiates the seven bowl judgments which are the final judgments that establish the kingdom of Christ upon the earth. And then in 1618, that manifestation is the final manifestation with the judgment at the campaign of Armageddon when the kingdoms of man will all be overthrown and the Lord Jesus Christ will come and establish his kingdom upon the earth. Now, one of the key applications, one of the most important lessons that you can derive from a study of chapter 4 and 5 is that the 24 elders of the church, where are you going to be in Revelation chapter 4? Are you going to be among those 24 elders representing the church age believers? Or are you going to be, if you're still alive when the rapture occurs, among those who are the inhabitants of the earth? The only way to make a distinction is your view of Jesus Christ. Those who put their faith alone in Jesus Christ are those who will be resurrected and or raptured at the rapture of the church where the dead in Christ will rise first and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. At that point, we will be judged at the judgment seat of Christ not to determine if we get into heaven but our status based upon what we have done with what God has provided us in this age. Those who die without Christ face eternal condemnation. Those who are alive when the rapture occurs face the 
horrible judgments of the tribulation. Many of them will not survive. If they survive without ever trusting Christ, then they will be thrown into the lake of fire. This is an important decision. Another important decision has to do with worship. For those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, our part of our destiny as priests and kings is to worship God. Part of what we do here on earth is to learn how to worship God in preparation for that. And that involves all of our priestly functions as believer priests, which we have studied in the past, knowing the Word of God, our spiritual growth, our spiritual maturity. All of these are part of our uh, our spiritual life as priests. Our prayer life with the Lord is private worship. Learning His Word is part of our individual worship as priests. This is our responsibility to prepare us for that coming time. The next time we'll get into the understanding of the angels and the role of the angels, which is crucial for understanding what takes place in the coming chapters in Revelation for the role of the angels is important. And if we can't understand the events in human history as they relate to the events of the angelic revolt against God, then we're not going to appreciate the dynamics of these two chapters. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you so much that we have this picture of the future. That we as believer priests have a destiny as king priests to rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ and to serve you in the millennial kingdom and throughout eternity. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain. Scripture says that all have sinned fall short of the glory of God. That the penalty for sin is death, eternal condemnation. But God has given us a free gift in salvation through Jesus Christ. And all you have to do is accept that. He died on the cross for you. He paid the penalty for every single sin in your life. And if you have never trusted in Him as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. Your opportunity to make sure the fact that you will never go through the tribulation You will never go through the judgments of eternal condemnation, but you will be raptured with the church to be with the Lord forever. Father, we thank you for the challenge of Scripture that we've read this morning. It's comfort, it's encouragement. We pray that God the Holy Spirit would make these things real to us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together. We'll sing our closing hymn, number 406, My Hope is is in the Lord. And when you sing that, think of the fact that hope, biblically, biblically, is a confidence in our future destiny with the Lord. It is a confident expectation, a certainty that we have in the Lord. Let's stand as we sing.